This week I went into Toronto and I hooked up with some, a friend of mine and he brought me to an art studio and um, there was a number of friends there, old friends I had known from back in the day. Um, they had come from Holland here and they, they were YWAMers, but somewhere along the line it seems when I was talking to them that a lot of them had lost their faith. And that was kind of a hard thing to, you know, have those conversations and yet we still had some very uh, strong powerful conversations. And the thing I was really thankful for was during all this and the questioning and the thinking, they brought up a name of someone that I hadn't heard of. When I think of uh, faithful women in Holland or the Netherlands, I often think of Corrie Ten Boom, my mom's favorite book, The Hiding Place, a very powerful story. But I guess over there, they were surprised that we knew who Corrie Ten Boom was because the person that they know best is this person here. Sweet old lady. And she is as hard as nails. Her name is Major Bosshart. And she too, when she was young, she converted, became a, a Salvation Army uh, gen, um, major. And eventually what she did was she was in, in uh, the Second World War. She was actually helping with her father who had brought all these Jewish children into their home and they, kinda, and they hid them. And so that was kind of her introduction to ministering and caring for people. Eventually, when the war was over, she became famous because the Salvation Army had no presence in the red light district. And so she decided that she was going to go into the heart of darkness and she went and started a, a ministry in the red light district. Became very famous when she actually took, at that time, Princess Beatrix, I have a picture here of her. The prince is all disguised. He took her for a walk through the red light district to show her what was really happening there. And now Queen Beatrix will always be looked back on this, this time as a formative period of kind of recognizing what's actually happening into her country, you know, being protected. And now this lady, Major Bosshart, had shown her through. Another very thing that uh, caught the, the attention of the Dutch was she appeared on television with this very famous rock star. His name was Herman Brood, and he was one of those rock stars that liked to be crass. He liked to be shocking. And so they had this show where they went to the French Isles and kind of put two people together and make them live together for a week. And she, this major, in the, is, was with him. And uh, the, all sorts of shenanigans uh, ensued. And it was very popular with the, the Dutch. It kind of opened their minds to what uh, a Christian truly was. It's very interesting to me. Because when I, when I heard these duchies, as we call them, talking about her, you could hear, even in the midst of their, their doubting, they had this reverence for this woman. And I started recognizing that for them, when they talk about Jesus and God, the thing that kind of still held them a little bit was the life of this woman. That, the, that all the talking and the conversations, the, the philosophical debating, that had a, maybe its place, but the thing that made them still understand that Jesus really impacts people's lives was the way that this woman, Major Bosthart, lived. They couldn't doubt her. They couldn't doubt that Jesus did something to her. And so we learn as we talk about exile, the key to living in exile is living for God. We're going to look into 1 Peter 4, and we're going to follow a bit. I'm not going to jump into the ending, because uh, the ending, again, goes back into suffering for God. I think you suffered enough last week with uh, learning that suffering for God is part of what it means to be in exile. So we're going to, we're going to concentrate on the, on the first half, which is this call for us as Christians, as we recognize Jesus suffered, that this calls us to living a life that's focused on God. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body— 
arm yourselves also with that same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Christ suffered in his body so that you would be done with sin. And yet, these human desires, they, they battle in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit against the will of God. And this is the struggle of the Christian life. Anyone who's followed Jesus for a little while, after you kind of get that initial rush of energy and excitement, you recognize the Holy Spirit's in you, after a while, you start to come to this point when you have this struggle between your own human desires and the will of God. And what we're called to if we're living in exile is to remember that we live for God. The ruling principle of our life should always be, here's God's will. And as we're looking at things and decisions in life, we kind of recognize, oh, I really want to do this. And we look at what is, what is God's will? And our call as we live in exile is to choose God. Your will be done. And we're going to see Peter starts start to explain this. What does it mean to live according to God's will? Well, he begins by kind of showing a negative instance. Here's some things you don't do. And then he'll get into some positives. A lot of times as Christians, we like just to focus only on the positives, I think. Because the negatives, we kind of got labeled. A lot of us went too far with the negative thing, right? So don't do this, don't do that. And after a while, this legalism starts to erupt out of it. And so we kind of got labeled with this. And I would say that there's a balancing approach. It's actually interesting to me, a guy named Kendrick Lamar was talking about this recently. He was talking about, uh, he's a rapper, he's kind of famous. And he talked about how when he's thinking about God now, he, he really needs to think more about the judgment of God because he never heard that growing up in church. And I was like, I heard a lot of that when I was growing up in church. <laughs> but this is balancing act. And so here's what we hear. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse upon you. I actually, uh, we were wondering whether we should bring the kids, the, the junior high in or not today. I was like, ah, this passage has some words there that maybe some parents will want us to have them in the, in the side. It's a pretty graphic list, isn't it? But this is what the Christians of that day were facing. The idolatry came with these practices. When you worshiped Dionysius, you got wasted. And you jumped and just uh, sexual promiscuity. This is how you lived. And so they would be invited. Hey, you coming out to the Dionysius party today? And, and the Christians had a choice at that moment. Do I, do I kind of feel like and my desires pull me towards what I used to do? Or do I live for God's will? When I think about this, even the list here, I was thinking of this, I was like, this is almost a list of what people nowadays expect you to live like in university. You go off and, and drunkenness ensues, right? That's kind of like just normal. If you don't, you're not normal. And they heap abuse upon you. This is the reality of what we're facing in today's day and age. Excesses in drinking, excesses in sex, partying. 
It says that in another translation that you, they want you to plunge with them into dissipation. It's almost like this, this pool and you're like, just jumping in, cannonball. They're expecting that for you. And when you don't do that, it's disturbing. Drunkenness, carousing. This is not the way of a Christian. Now, I do believe that we need to stand apart in these things. And it's very, very interesting for me. I grew up in a, in a Baptist church. And there's two things you don't do when you're a Baptist. You don't drink and you don't dance. And we started realizing, I started growing up, I was reading the Bible. I remember being very, because like, there's some wine all over the place in this thing. It's like everywhere. Jesus is drinking it, telling you to drink it. There's going to be mountains. It's going to be flowing down the, the mountains. I'm like, what? And so I re- recognize, like, if I'm going to be true to the scriptures, like, I can't just say, like, no alcohol. However, there's this pendulum. And I got to say, in the old days, I was really concerned about legalism in the church. Today, I'm probably not so afraid of you, many of you being too legalistic when it comes to drinking. I'm not too afraid of myself. It's, it's more on the other side, right? Where do I actually in any way kind of control my drinking? Is there any way in which I, I show that this is a gift from God and it brings joy, and yet at the same time, there's a danger there? So I just want to throw that out there to recognize that as Christians, that we need to use alcohol like Jesus did. Let's not become known like, for our drinking proudness, right? Recognizing it's a gift from God to be used in its proper context, just like sex. There's a place for everything. But if you decide not to have that extra drink because you're like, oh, I'm, I'm okay right now, have you ever had the moment when the abuse starts to be heaped upon you? Oh, lightweight. Come on, man, whatever. This is what we're hearing from Peter. They're going to, you start to get pushed in that direction. The kind of abuse, maybe, that happens. A, a, a well-known writer was named Tacticus. And what he said about Christians were they're, they're haters of the human race. Why? Because they didn't jump into all the things that Tacticus thought was just part of normal, everyday life. They were made fun of for being prudish. Did you ever get teased at work? Let me ask you, do people love it when they catch you swearing at work? Oh, you're a Christian, I got you. Right, because there's a sense in which the community looks at Christians and they kind of want to, you know, come on, let's walk, let's walk this way. Let's walk this way. It's a game. Right? Let's try to get the new Christian guy drunk. Why is that? And I wonder about that. And, and I, what I want to just call us out to is all of us to recognize living for God is going to mean sometimes, yes, you will be made fun of. You'll be teased a little bit. Living for God means that you need to look at your life and go, you know, I'm not going to live exactly like the world. There's going to be sometimes where I have to say no. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. What I think is happening here is Paul's actually talking about what happens to us as Christians in, in verse 6, that we are being judged according to human standards. So when the humans look at us, like, why? You guys are weird. 
Christians are weird. Here's kind of throw judgment on us. But what matters is what God's saying when he looks at you. And what's going to happen is there's going to be a, re- a great reversement of judgment. Right now, that Christians are being judged in a certain way by society, and at some point, it'll be turned, and God will show himself true to those who are faithful to him, living for God. Now, this is all kind of like what not to do. Here's your list, don't do these things. Hopefully a lot of those things are not part of our lives, but this is, this is kind of the negative. And negatives don't end up inspiring, do they? Don't do this, don't do that. It's not, what inspires us as Christians, like, what, are you, what are you calling us to, God? What, what, is it, what does it actually look like? That's what it doesn't look like. What does it look like when I am living for God? And so he starts to break it down. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. Be alert and sober-minded so that you may pray. A life of a Christian is a life where someone is actively communicating with God constantly. It's always remembering to to go back to God and and spend some time with him. And and this clear-mindedness is actually really important because if you're not clear-minded, you don't have that chance to actually talk with God in the way that you need to. Inebriation kind of messes with our, our communication. So here we have this kind of positive, hey guys, have your minds clear and ready. Be, be at the best so that you can pray. What is it that allows you to have this clear mind? We often talk about meditation, right? As, as the sense of clear your mind. Here we hear Paul saying, or Peter saying, clear your mind. Make sure it's clear so that you can talk to God. And that begins this kind of next step. But as you start praying, you start letting uh, the Spirit of God speak into your heart. He's going to tell you some things. He's going to talk to you about how you should live your life. And this is what he says. Above all else, love each other deeply. We heard this a few weeks ago. This phrase, love each other deeply. Because love covers over a multitude of sins. I love that little story that we heard Elizabeth read for us. This idea of like loving, somehow love conquering this ugliness. Proverbs 10, 12 is the, the verse where it originally says that love covers a multitude of sins. And, and sometimes like we're wondering, what does that mean? Actually, in, in, the, in the Proverbs, what's happening there, it's more of a love doesn't stir up sins or doesn't broadcast sins. What that kind of means is love is this, this powerful force in your life that when you have these sins come against you, you're not kind of just like airing your grievances all over the place. You hear that person did to me and what that person did to me. The, the love that's in your heart is allowing you actually to kind of cover that over. And where does that come from, that type of love? Well, it comes from the love that you've received from God. But somehow as you live your life and as you sin, thank the Lord that you have this love that just covers over all that. All those times that you don't live up to the don't do's and the do's and all, that this love just covers all of that. And so you, as you live your life, live a life that loves so much that it's going gonna, it's gonna to cover, blanket over the sin that you see around you, the sin that happens to you. It's not pretending it's hiding. It's an actual, uh, a powerful form of forgiveness. Nobody will know what you mean if you say God is love and you don't act it. Nobody's going to know what you mean. 
Why do Christians have these reputations for being self-righteous, stingy, prudish, judgmental? I'll tell you why. Because we say love, 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 love. Do we do love, 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 love? And this is called to have this heart change. Have you ever had someone forgive you? Like, honestly, like, you messed up, you did something shouldn't have done, you've hurt someone horribly, and then they just kind of offer you this, this forgiveness. And you almost can't accept it because you feel too much the power, the impact of your hurt on them, and yet they just, they, they let their love cover it over. If you've ever received that kind of, just that human love, you start to recognize that's the way of God. That's the love of a Christian. Does your husband or your wife or your kids or your coworkers or your friends, do they cover over anything about you? I'm very thankful for love because there's a lot of things that my wife's love covers over in me. I'm sure a few other of you gentlemen here will have that as well. It covers over. This is what love does. It cares for us. It covers. It forgives. It's the way of God. It's a love that forgives like God forgives. I love when Jefferson mentioned in his video that when he came here, that he, he felt just like immediately welcomed like a family. That he felt a, a love. And I, I have to say, that was the same thing I felt when the first time I came and visited. And I'm really excited to be part of a community like Forestview, where I do believe that this, this love is a, a genuine thing. Where you, if you come here, you will find people who love you. But let's not rest on our laurels. Let's rip it up. Let's take, let's take this love to, to a next level. Let's, let's even love our enemies. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. I was talking to a young lady at our church service uh, afterwards last week. And we were talking about this whole theme of exile and Christians in exile. And, and she brought up a really good point. That a lot of times as Christians, we do spend a lot of time thinking about um, how we are in exile, how we're kind of pushed aside. But it's really important to remember that a lot of times Christians have been the exilers. Who, who are we exiling? Do we have this hospitality that would welcome anyone? And that's why I love the picture Jesus gave of the Good Samaritan, where he's like, this outsider is the one who's being hospitable, because it makes you kind of wake up like, oh, would, would, would James and John actually welcome a Samaritan? Probably not likely at that time. Christians found it hard sometimes to, to welcome others. The Romans, Samaritans. Who is it that we might have a problem with? Atheists? Is it Muslims? Right? As Christians, who are we exiling? And it's not a legitimate option. We have to be hospitable to everyone. We don't get to, you know, uh, also what I love about this is hospitality without grumbling. We don't just go like, oh, I was hospitable today. Meanwhile, the whole time we're mumbling in the restaurant, oh, I'm making these cookies for those stupid, nah, nah. right? You ever, you ever had that when you're serving and you're not, you're grumbling underneath it all. And smile. Help them the carnival. <laughs> I know it. I'm not immune to that as well, right? I know, I know what that feels like. And yet we have this thing of, of without grumbling. And why? Hospitality is a beautiful thing. When real hospitality happens, people take notice. There was just on the internet, uh, something's been going viral recently on this woman uh, who's a Hoosiers fan coming out of Indiana. She was in Chicago, 
And someone actually took this picture from a rooftop because he was so impacted by it. She actually helped this blind man find a cab after this game. And she kind of came beside him, held his hand, uh, flagged down the, the, uh, the cab, and finally let him get into it. And the internet was just in love with this act. Because here's a spontaneous act of hospitality. No one knew no one knew was looking. But when they saw it, they're like, yeah, that's love. I talked about Major Bosshard. Isn't that an awesome name for him? We're like, Bosshard. She's on this show, and this man's known as a little bit of a slime ball for losing. He's, he's uh, addicted to all sorts of substances. And there's a scene in it where he's kind of been having a party, party doubt, and he's in the house that they're kind of sharing together, and he's in the bathtub. And he says to her, hey, why don't you come in the bath with me and, and, and wash my body? And he's doing it in kind of the most slimiest way, right? Trying to get under his skin, kind of push at her a little bit. And she's like, dude. Well, maybe you shouldn't say dude. This isn't Dutch. So. <laughs> I'm Salvation Army. Do you know how many bodies I've washed before? Sure, I'll wash you down. And she gets into the, into the bathtub and she washes them down on national television. And that moment kind of changed the psyche of what a Christian looks like in the Netherlands. People are like, oh, did you see her? Last night became this talking point around the watercolors that someone was so hospitable that she did that and she just kind of, she didn't, she didn't fall into his trap. She actually broke his trap apart and, and he was kind of just left like amazed himself. And it showed Christ in a way that people would not forget. It's funny talking to these people, they, just, they still marvel at this moment that she lived for God. It won over a nation because she used the strength inside her. And so what's your strength? If we continue on, what does it look like to live for God? We have this hospitality. We have this love. It also says that you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in his various forms. Use your gifts. Here's the more important part. I love the word that Christians use the word. We don't call it talents. We call it gifts. Why? Because it's something you've been given. It's not yours. You don't own it. And you've been given it for a reason, to share it with others. Your gift is actually other people's gifts. If you don't use it, you're hoarding it. It's meant to be given. And so I want to thank everyone here who's going to the carnival today to use their gifts. Some of you have spent some time, you've been digging into things. Thank you. This is a, is a major act of hospitality. I believe that this shows love and hospitality to our community, and I pray that it welcomes people in, that they know that we're real about Jesus. If anyone speaks, they should do as one speaking the words of God. If you serve, you should do it with the strength that God provides. All things that, may, that God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Why do we live like this? Why do we follow Jesus? So that God's name may be praised. The reason you're welcoming people, the reason we're going into the park across the way, isn't just so oh, people know who Forest View is. Or, this is like God may be praised. People go like, wow, they love God. It points always back to God. Living from God comes from thinking about him first, kind of recognizing who he was. And so when I think about Major Bosshart, and I recognize that she lived for God, I had a friend actually say to me, like, you, know, you know how, like, he's kind of sheepish, but he's like, uh, sorry, but most people, when they don't like Christians. I was like, 
Yeah, I kind of know that. He's like, in the Netherlands, no one would ever say that they didn't like Major Bossart. It's like, why? Because she showed it. She lived it. She breathed it. And that's what Peter's calling us to be in our own little places. And you know what? It might be, make people uncomfortable sometimes when you have to uh, abstain from something or you say something here or there. But recognizing as we live in exile, we live lives that show that God makes a difference. God changed me. I am a bit different because I love Jesus. There's actually a statue of Major Bossart now in the Red Light District. Can you imagine that? You're walking through Red Light District and there's this little powerhouse of a Christian woman sitting on a bench in gold representing Christians were here. Christians cared about the prostitutes. Those who love Jesus love you. And that's who we are. And this is how we get excited. We avoid the excesses of the world. We stay clear-minded. We focus. We pray. We love. We show this hospitality without grumbling. And we serve. As we have this paradigm of what it means to live in exile, we start to live lives that shine for Jesus. We love the city. We love our towns. We love Oakville. We love Milton. We love Burlington. We're living for God. And you can do this. Sometimes it sounds a little, where am I going to fit in? You don't have to do something exotic like be a, a colonel in the Salvation Army, which is a beautiful thing. You can do it just by being at work. I was talking with Nancy, and she was telling me how they just invited their coworkers over to the house, had a meal. And the only thing that they did different, probably, was they prayed before their meal. And I was like, that's missional. That's what we're talking about. That's just representing Jesus. It doesn't have to be anything fancier. It's just living for God and representing and being true to who he is. I know I was talking to Steve and Michelle James, and they were talking about, oh, they have the soup fest every year because uh, Forest View kind of called people to have these barbecues and things. And so now every year, their neighbors are kind of asking them, like, hey, can, are you going to do soup fest again? It's a sense of how you're loving and caring for people. Let's live for God in our neighborhoods. Let's just show them. Like, we're not living after these desires. We're living after God. And as we pursue God, we look different, we shine, and people start to glorify his name, even though they don't even know him yet. 